Every single pitch changes the scenario of the baseball game. We trust analytics more than we do our own eyes. Really, the reaction doesn't really matter what you and I think. It's what the fans think. A lot of things, obviously, I've said on the radio that a lot of people would like to say. And we got enough artificial intelligence in baseball right now. And a lot of them went to Ivy League school. No, the days of Cal Ripken are gone. The days of playing 162 games are gone. And I think that is a good thing. I don't want my guys playing every day. I want them well rested. Shoot, even a, even a farmer gives his soil a year off. The political correctness is driving me crazy. The great managers are, are the ones that don't win games. They just don't lose games as often. If that's not the last time I'm going to correct you, that won't be the last time you're wrong about something. I'm going to let you know about that. I'm going to take you places that you wish you always went. How's that? And welcome to a view from center field. Welcome to a brand new podcast. My name is Andy Van Syk, and welcome to a view from center field. Along with me is Rob Rains. Rob Rains, a longtime sports beat writer for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, I played 13 years in the major leagues. If you don't know who I am, Google me and you will find out that uh, you have now uh, are in contact with a player that is uh, not short of opinions and who has a different way of looking at uh, at life, at baseball, and, uh, and what's going on not only in baseball but our country. And I think along with me, Rob Raines has a much more rational point of view so we're going to have a really well-balanced show here rob rains uh has written and co-authored over 33 books so his knowledge of major league baseball is endless so when you listen to this broadcast you're going to get an endless um point of view not only from an ex-player but from a guy who really knows the game and who is very articulate and is well-written and uh, he is a former beat writer of St. Louis Cardinals, like I said, for the Globe Democrat, which was the conservative paper of the St. Louis metropolitan area, which no longer exists. Now we only have uh, a paper called the Post Disgrace. Oh, oh the Post Dispatch, I'm sorry. And uh, so we only have one point of view when it comes uh, to news here in St. Louis and also one point of view when it comes to sports in St. Louis. But we're going to talk not only about uh, about baseball here in St. Louis, but we're going to be talking about baseball across the country. And we want you to be part of the show. We're going to give you an opportunity to email us, to comment, and tell us where you like to hear and where we should go and maybe where we shouldn't go. So, Rob, welcome. Welcome to the first broadcast of A View from Center Field. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to do the show. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I know we had a lot of fun over the years when we did a radio show together in St. Louis for a number of years. And as you uh, as you and I have talked about, some of the stuff that was the most fun on those broadcasts was the stuff that never got on the air because it was or we were commenting back and forth yes. uh, during, during the breaks. And I think you'll, your feeling on this podcast is uh, you won't have that kind of uh, restriction. I said we, 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 not me, we. You're the one with I all want the you to go, I, I'm going to take you places that you wish you always went. How's that? <laughs> well, I've been to a few of those places. <laughs> I know you have. No, I, I think, uh, you know, for our listeners, the, 
for people who uh, who who've never been behind the scenes of a radio broadcast, you know, a lot of things obviously aren't said on the radio that a, a lot of people would like to say, and I understand that. And and you and I have parameters. We have we had bosses to uh, to answer to. We had advertisers to answer to. But I think sometimes the most interesting uh, conversations I've only not only had with you, but 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 other with other guests and other hosts is during the break. You know, I we often would say, "Boy, I wish I could say that on the radio." So maybe we're going to go there with this broadcast. I think a lot of times, um, you know, we wish we could say certain things, and, and we're too worried about the repercussions. Uh, I think sometimes we're going to go right up to the line, and we may step over it at times. But if that's the case, you know, my my uh, my staunch son of who is uh, the broadcast engineer of the show, he might just have to delete some of those things. Well, I think the one thing about uh, about it is we come into this broadcast kind of as the same we, as we did when you were a player and I was a writer. Is we have a couple of different perspectives. You know, you have the perspective of playing as many years in the big leagues as you did and seeing everything that you did and seeing how, you know, the game changed over the years. And then you spent some time both coaching for Detroit and for uh, Seattle. So you saw that perspective. You also got a son who's currently in – Spring training with the Marlins, Scott Van Slyke. So you've seen it from a parent's perspective. I've seen how the yeah. game. I've seen how the game has changed from a media perspective over the uh, thirty-five plus years, or whatever that I've been involved in covering the game. So we have a lot, as you mentioned, to kind of bring to the table. And and it's a, you know it's one thing we certainly know about the game is there's a lot of things to talk about. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of uh, concerns. And I think you know the fact that you're. Uh, you know, one of the f- f- few former players out there who's going to be hosting a podcast, I think, gives you some uh, some latitude only- to impress, uh, impress people with your opinions. Well, this will be the the uh, the only former major league player who will be hosting a broadcast. So, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, I can get a point of view that may may not uh, be presented out in the uh, in the public. So, you know, hopefully, we can go there. So, let me ask you this then. Um, first of all, why why do you think it's important for you to do this? And having uh, a perspective, like you said, for the last 35 years, uh, why do you think the game has changed radically? And I think maybe more radically in the last five to 10 years than maybe in the history of, of Major League Baseball. Well, I think the biggest problem is demographics. I, I think that the, the issue with, with baseball is that it's always been viewed as kind of your father's game and your grandfather's game. And it, it's a game that you and I grew up watching, but primarily you and I grew up listening to games on the radio. And if there was a game on television, it was kind of a unique experience. And I think that the, the way that the growth of television broadcasts, almost every game is on television now everywhere. And you can watch, you know, in St. Louis, you can watch the Dodgers play every night. You can watch the Mets play every night. And, you know, you didn't used to have that perspective. So I think the game was more special than it used to, than it probably is now. And I think it also changed the fans' perspective on on what they were watching. And I think the money has changed. You know, the amount of money that guys get now has, has changed people's perspectives about what they're watching and what they expect from well, players. Wait a minute. You're trying to tell me that people, people are going to have a different perspective watching a major league game just because a guy may be making – uh, $10 million or $20 million or $30 million a year than if he was making only $100,000 a year like Babe Ruth did? You're, you're trying to tell me that people's perspectives well, are going to change? Whether not player- that, yeah, not that so much, but because I think you're just, you know, the expectations of fans are increased when a player's salary increases. Yes, and I think, I think you know, that, uh, you know, in, in Babe Ruth's era, yeah, he was making more money than anybody else in the world. But more than the president. 
it wasn't a significant difference. You know, it wasn't a difference of somebody making $20 million a year where the normal working person is making $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was a, it was a greater, it was a, a disparity, disparity, but it sure. wasn't as great. It wasn't as great a disparity as it is now. And I think it does change your perspective of, as a fan and, and your expectation level of what you want to see out of those stars. So the expectations, what to perform better? Is it? I mean, uh, when, now let me let me flip it on you. When you were playing and making a good salary playing major league baseball, yes. not the highest player in the game, but a very no, paid very no, well. I, actually, actually, Rob, I did was, you feel like you you have, did you feel like you had extra pressure on you because of how much money you made? Uh, I felt like I had extra expectations for myself. At one point, I was the for about two weeks. Think about this: how this is how fast salaries escalated. For two weeks, I was the highest-paid player in the big leagues. By the end of the season, I think I was like fortieth. So that's how wow. fast that's how fast you know salaries have been, had escalated in the nineties, and that has everything to do with television. Everything to and do, do with television. And do, did you feel like though, as as you got more money, to, that your perspective on the game changed? Well, I think what happened was I uh, I I don't want to say I deserved it. Because you know anybody who thinks that they deserve millions of dollars to, to play a, a baseball game, they're crazy. I was fortunate. I was in a very fortunate position. Yes, I did work hard. Yes, I was a highly skilled athlete at the time. Uh, but my only perspective changed in the sense that I felt more responsible for myself to perform at a higher level. I felt more responsible to the to the fans. This really. Uh, has to do with me playing in Pittsburgh. That's when this all occurred. And I had higher expectations to be a better teammate because when you get paid and you're the highest paid player in a team, um, you have more responsibility. It just goes along to territory. And if any player doesn't take on that responsibility, uh, probably shouldn't be paid the dollars that he does. And here's the the nice thing. I think most players, when they become – a player that gets that kind of money, they do take that responsibility on. Because that responsibility extends beyond the playing field. I mean, it extends to community service. It extends to giving back to the community, extends to wanting to sign autographs, make public appearances. I think there is that expectation that if you're being paid like a star, you need to perform like a star on and off the field. Well, yes. Uh, I don't think every player believes that. Uh, I think some players naturally would do that whether they're the lowest paid player in a team or the highest paid player. But yeah, you're right. There, there, there are certain responsibilities as you make more money, uh, more responsibility does come upon the player and some players respond wonderfully and some players don't. And I really think that has to do with, with each individual person, Rob, you can't expect some players, uh, you know, that, that, that naturally don't, don't want to embrace that or don't have that in them to all suddenly, be something that they're not. And you've seen that from players. There's certain sure. players that, that love, you know, just playing the game, just going home, uh, whether they're married or not married, they like their private life. And, mm-hmm. and I think here's another thing that I think has changed. I think the expectation of major league baseball clubs with the stars has also changed. I think they, they feel because they're paying, uh, you know, five or 10 guys, millions and multi-millions of dollars, to play the game that all of a sudden they they should be at their beck and call and i think that's a very unfair thing for major league baseball teams to do to players 
Well, I think part of it too. It, it depends on individual's personality. You know, you can't make guys outgoing and and uh, fun loving and things like that if that's not in their nature to do that. You know, and some guys just are introverts that they, like you said, they want to keep to themselves. They they try hard and they do their business hard, but then they just don't you know want to do anything else beyond that. And you can't make them do something that they're not going to do. But yeah. I think this. I also think this. I also think that there's too many players in the game today who approach it as a business first. And as a game, what they had fun loving as a kid and how why they are becoming baseball players because they love playing as a kid, I think they lose that perspective a little bit once the money gets into it and gets to be a well, significant amount of money. Like I, like I, you said and I said, I think it, it's all on an individual. That's Rob Raines. Again, Rob, let me brag about uh, – about your uh, your resume, you've uh, you've also written books about uh, Jack Buck, Tony La Russa, Mark McGuire, Ozzy Smith, uh, uh, Albert Pujols, and Red Shandies. Now, if you're if you're listening, you wonder why Rob has only written uh, such great autobiographies about great St. Louis people. It's because Rob lives in St. Louis. I also live in St. Louis, so you're going to have a, a Midwestern point of view. Um, we take a little more pride here in St. Louis that we have baseball knowledge beyond the rest of the country. I can say without a doubt that's not true, but most people here in St. Louis think that is true, and I think Rob would agree with me on that, wouldn't you, Rob? Well, people call it the best baseball city in America, and we didn't invent that term. It was somebody else that created that term, and I think the fans were I don't know if that was created outside of St. Louis. Well, but we didn't, we didn't create it. It wasn't you and I that you, did it. I didn't create it. You didn't create it, but someone in St. Louis created it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think all you got to do is look at how – I mean, I think it goes two-fold. It goes with the success that the franchise has had over the years. Sure. And, and how many playoff games they've won, how many World Series sure. they've won. And I also think it goes to the fact that you're selling, you know, 3.4 million tickets a year in a market that's probably one of the smallest, you know, markets in the major leagues. That is also true. But I – and here's the thing. I think – part of that is if you look at other base, great baseball cities, and I think there's a lot of great baseball cities um, that would have the same history if they had the same tradi- winning tradition that St. Louis has. Now, you were here, uh, and you know the history of St. Louis baseball uh, back in the 70s. They weren't drawing people back in the 70s when they were. No, they weren't, they weren't, very, they weren't very good, yeah. No. And so, also, don't forget, we've also got the national perspective because of the fact that, you know, you you played in other cities and the fact that, you know, I spent, you know, five, six years as one of the founding writers at USA Today Baseball Weekly in the early 90s as a nationally beat writer. So, not only do we, you know, pay attention to St. Louis sports, but we were involved, both you and I, a lot of times uh, talking in the dugout or Three River Stadium or in the, uh, in the clubhouse at Three River Stadium. So, playoff games and things like that or, you know, I, I still never forget and you won't forget it either, one of the Worst clubhouses I was ever in in my life was in Atlanta, 1993, when you guys lost to the uh, lost to the Braves. 92. 92. 92. Yeah. So, yes. So I forgot it. I, I got the year wrong. That's okay. You That's didn't, okay. It won't, be, you it won't be a lot. That's not the last time I'm going to correct you, and that, will be the la- that won't be the last time you're wrong about something. I'm going to let you know about that. Okay. So, so <laughs> you know, last thing is, so so it's not just St. Louis. I mean, we, you, yes, you're right. We do live in St. Louis. We cover the Cardinals. You know, I cover the Cardinals on a daily basis. For <coughs> excuse me, my website, stlsportspage.com. But, you know, we also look at the game globally and, and nationally, and I think that's – and have a perspective on that, which we're going to hopefully be able to share uh, as we go through, you know, through this show and through this season in future podcasts. Right. So, you know, covering baseball as long as you have, what, what do you think the, uh, the average listener, the average baseball fan, or the, uh, the average guy that sits at home after 
a hard day's work. What do you think um, he really wants to hear differently maybe that he hasn't heard before? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, for, from a player, you mean, for, from a media member? No, no, no. For, for the average fan. I mean, the average fan, he, you know, everything he, he sees is uh, – um, I mean, there's so much to, to – there's so many different avenues now uh, to get your information about baseball. Does right. he really want to know just about, you know, the modern game of analytics? Does he want to know, uh, you know – What's going on with a player off the field? Does he want to know about? The, I mean, you've covered baseball yeah. a long time, and now I think the expectation of the average fan, uh, they expect more. Well, Do I they think, expect I think more? They want, I think or they want. They, I think they want to learn something that they didn't know by watching the game. Yeah, I think that you know you can see all the highlights you know available online. You can you know see the game online if you can't watch it on a computer. So you know I think the old fashioned game story per se of you know like the. The Pirates took a 3-2 lead in the second when Matt like get a three-round homer. I don't think you need that as much anymore. Now, I think you need to go beyond the game and tell people, well, you know, Vance like was sick or he was, you know, feeling bad because he just did, you know, had his tooth pulled or, or whatever. I mean, I think there's got to be some inside kind of information that you're getting as a reporter, being able to talk to players, being able to be in their clubhouse, being able to, to know the background and the history of what's going on. I think people expect that more than just the results of what they already know happened because they saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's something that maybe a lot of listeners don't uh, don't have a concept of. When we're talking about spring training, obviously spring training uh, has has opened up um, th- this week, and it's it's earlier than it's ever been, and it's also uh, I, I, very uh, strangely, it's the shortest spring training preparation in the history of Major League Baseball. I have never seen a season start. When players only have four or five days of working out before they start games. Now, having said that, I understand the players are in better shape than they've ever been. Spring training used to be years ago, and I, and you, you probably will acknowledge this that when players went through spring training, maybe way back when you first started covering spring training, they used to go to spring training to get in shape. Correct. That is not the case anymore because most of the times they had an off-season job they had to work at to make money. Yeah, most guys, yes, yes. Most guys had, to, well, yeah, maybe that started stopping maybe in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. But, yeah, you're right. There, there was not enough money to carry on through the offseason. Um, when, la- when was the last year you had an offseason job while you were playing? I never I never had. Well, let me take that back. I, I signed my first major league contract in 1979. I worked the winter of 79. I worked the, uh, the winter of 1980. Uh, I also worked the winter of 1981. In my first uh, off-season, 1982, uh, I went to play in, in Puerto Rico. So from 1982 on, I, I had never had an off-season where I had to work. Hmm. So, yeah, things have changed. So uh, my biggest fear about the shortening of, of guys getting ready for spring training, because really there is two. Here's another thing. There's a, there, there are two types of shape. You can be – in treadmill shape, you can be in batting cage shape. Uh, you know, you can get a personal trainer all winter, but there is something totally different when it comes to being in baseball shape. And, and until you go through those motions at a high, high, high level, at a high rate, and you're repeating and you're repeating and you're repeating um, to, to gradually get yourself in game shape, um, I would not be surprised if we see a lot of guys start on the DL this year because of that, because of the shortening 
of the preparation of getting ready for games. Well, I also think you're going to see a lot of guys come ease into the uh, into the games. I don't think you know you're going to see a lot of the star regulars playing, you know, every game early on in spring training. They're going to get played one game, get a couple of the bats, take the next couple of days off, then play another game, get a couple of innings in. You know, so I don't think they're going to right. overtax guys to make. Because one of the things is you got 65 players in in most spring camps. You got at least 65 players. Right. So you got a lot of guys that you want to you want to see some of the younger guys play anyway. And the guys are going to end up going to the minor leagues. Now you don't want to get anybody hurt. You don't want to get a prospect hurt. You don't want to. Get no, but at my point, I, but I. But, but once the season starts, though, do you, here's my here's my question, and I, and I think I know the answer. I don't think there's these guys are going to have enough reps in spring training. Right. That when, when opening day starts, now they're going to be busting out of the, well, out of the box, true. or right. they're going to be diving for a ball. Now they're playing. They're playing at a hundred percent in spring training. You know not to go a hundred percent. The only time you really go 100% as, as an everyday player or, or as a position player is when you're swinging at the bat facing a live pitching. But, you know, if you hit a ground ball, you know, you're not going to sprint 100% to first base. Or even if you hit a double in the gap, you're going to be jogging to second base, not even thinking about three. How, so, how many at bats do you think it took you to get ready to play to start the season? Well, it's for me. I I needed you know between at least fifty and sixty at bats in, in spring training, and you know the, I can remember uh, my first couple of spring trainings where guys were getting seventy, eighty, ninety at bats of spring training. So, um, again, um, and those are and that's when you hear people complaining the spring training is too long. It's too long, exactly. Well, the games, yeah, the games can be too long. There's no question about that. But you know, every uh, it's really here's another the the individual player has to communicate individually and, and really be on top of his body uh, and communicate to the trainer uh, to the to the manager and the coaches just how he feels, and that's really really important. You know, in the old days, <laughs> you know, th- there was a saying: "Don't ever be seen in, in, in the training room." Right. Don't ever be seen in training. Well, that has completely changed. You talk about a change in the game, Rob. My gosh, uh, it looks like you know it looks like a war room sometimes in, in early you know early morning in a training room in the major league. You, you'll have 20, 30, 40 guys in, in in a training room, you know, getting rubbed or getting some kind of treatment. So, and the, the interesting thing, well, yeah, the interesting I think thing, they, Rob, is the, the injuries. The injuries haven't changed. No, but the way we look at them has changed. You know, you, you used to get a sore arm. You know, you didn't have the, the torn UCL or anything like that. You know, you used to have a sore knee, you know, or, or something like that. So I think we, the the way that the medical profession has changed and the analysis of the injuries and not wanting to get guys hurt, I think that's what's, that's what's changed more than the actual injury itself. But how you react to the injury is what's different. Well, there's a lot more protection. And that, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, the days of, of you know, and part of that's because, lot, of money, part of that's because of the money you're playing in these guys. Absolutely, I wouldn't want to jeopardize a guy, my superstar, who's making. All, I don't want. I want my everyday players to be playing as much as they can every single day. So yeah, if they, I'd rather have a guy play 140 games, um, at, at close to 100 percent, than play 100 games. You know, not being able to play at, at full strength. So it's you know the days of Cal Ripken are gone. The days of playing 162 two games are gone, and I think that is a good thing. I think that's one of the, one of the transformations in the game. One of those old school things. Well, he can't play every day. I don't want my guys playing every day. 
I want them well rested. Shoot, even a, even a farmer gives his soil a year off. He he plants for six and gives gives the soil, you know, a year off. The same even, thing must apply the, to the, years, the players. Even the years when you were, you know, having an all-star caliber season and playing at the top of your game, you still wanted to have a day off every now and then. I I wanted him, but I never asked for one. And there's a difference. There's a big difference between wanting one and taking one. I never asked for a day off. Let me ask you guys. I take that back. I take that back. I asked once, and I'm going to tell that story sometime in the future. I asked. I asked for one day, and I didn't get it. Do you think uh, that we're ever going to see a deal where they add a 26 man to the roster? What because of all that? I think they should. I have a very, very good way of speeding up the game. Yes, and that's one way of doing it. It's getting 26 guys on the roster. Why would that? Yes. Why would that speed up the game? Because it can only be a pitcher. And here's my thing. You can only you can only have 11 pitchers on your roster. You can actually have 12 pitchers, but only only six of them can be used, or actually 11 if you want to count your starters. Right. And you can only have six guys in the bullpen and have a seventh guy rotate for a day off. That way you're forced not to make as many pitching changes. I see. Yeah, that could work. Think about it. I mean, it absolutely could work. It's the best. And here's the thing. The game has become and, – and, and this is a point of view which I don't maybe a lot of people don't agree with me. One of the reasons why pitcher by managers make as many pitching changes as they do is because they don't want the consequences of taking a leaving a guy in there like a right hander facing a left handed batter or a lefty facing a right handed batter. The days when I first came to the big leagues again, I'm not I don't want to sound like an old cr- crunchy old player, but. Every pitcher in the bullpen was expected to get both right-handers and left-handers well, out. We only had four or five Those guys in the bullpen in total. That's my like point. Like a nine-man pitching staff. Less pitching change. Yes. Why did that used to work? Well. Why did that used to work? Okay. And why doesn't it work today? And I, I think, think and, I, and I, believe this, I believe this unequivocally, that – Managers make pitching changes so they won't be criticized. I think it it would it doesn't work because people don't come up that way playing in the minor leagues. They can't they come up expecting there to be a ten or eleven man bullpen. Well, that well, I don't know. I that I no because I think I think that's when you find out whether they can get left handers or right handers out. And here's the thing: pitchers will tell you, you know, twenty years ago or thirty years ago, or maybe even ten years ago that they were expected to get both left-handers and right-handers out until they got to the big leagues. They came up with a pitch to get both guys out. That's not the case anymore. Now they become specialized. And they become specialized because they know, and the club knows, that if he can specialize getting maybe just a lefty out or just a righty out, that he may be able to be used four times a week or five times a week thrown to one or two batters, and that's it. Well, because And And because of that fact – and because of that fact, now you've got 13 pitchers on it and you got eight guys in a bullpen, you can do that. And that's what, to me, that's what slows the game down as much as anything is all the pitching changes and the amount of pitchers that are thrown in a baseball game. Well, they are going to try to change at least part of that by saying you can only have six mound visits per game. But as Mike Matheny was pointing out in one of our early conversations this spring down the Cardinals camp is that he doesn't think you're going to have most games that you're going to have that many mound visits anyway. Oh, <laughs> you kidding me? If if you look, I guarantee you if you look bad at any baseball game, and you could probably pick out half of them, 
The, I've seen catchers go out three times with one hitter to talk to the pitcher. Right. That happens all the time. But nobody really has paid attention to that. So you think that's going to actually help speed up the game? I Well, I absolutely think it's going to make a huge difference. I don't think the average fan realizes how many times a catcher would go out to the mound to talk to the pitcher. I mean, how many times have you seen a catcher put down a bunch of signs and the pitcher shakes his head and the catcher runs out there to tell him what pitch to throw? Right, And then he goes back and then fouls off a couple more pitches, puts a couple signs down, the pitcher shakes his head a couple more times, and the catcher runs out there again. Are That's you, ludicrous. Do you That's think, absolutely ludicrous. Do you think there is an issue with the pace of play or the length of games? Not for the, not for the people that go to the game, but I think for the viewer at home, yes. Well, I do. Part of the problem is baseball is really not a great sport to watch on television. No, it's not. It's a. It's 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 to me. It's just like hockey. Hockey is, is ten times a game live than it is on, on television. And I think baseball is the same. Now, if you want a different perspective, if you really want to see the nuances of what takes place in a baseball game, then I think baseball is a great game to watch on television. If you have the patience to sit there for three hours and really watch a baseball game. Because now you can see how the pitcher and the catcher are working together. And then you can, you know, if you really pay attention, you can really see how a hitter is trying to approach a major league pitcher. You can't get that perspective from left field to right field. But, but again, you have a different perspective on that watching a game on television than most fans do because of the fact that you're looking at it as a former player. You're absolutely correct. And here's another day. I just had this conversation with a gentleman the other day here in St. Louis who really didn't understand the game. And he thought the game was boring. I said, how can a game, how can a major league baseball game of all the sports in the world, now think about this, where you have th- over 300 different scenarios during the course of the game. Mm-hmm. Every single pitch changes the scenario of the baseball game. Every single pitch. Correct. Not, the, not necessarily even the scoreboard, but every pitch changes the scenario on how you think the next pitch should be thrown or the next play should be played. Which, again, puts the I mean, emphasis that's, that's on, on calls by the umpire. On, on the importance of getting that 1-1 one, one pitch to be called a strike instead of a ball is is monumental. Well, yeah, but even if the umpire blows it or maybe the umpire strikes on, that's another thing. You have to, you have Sometimes you have to learn what the, the umpire strike zone is. So again, that, that you can get that perspective better watching the game on television you, than you can watching the game live at a baseball stadium. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where we have a robot and mechanical umpires calling balls and strike instead of a real person? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. I think that's we got enough. We, yeah, we got enough artificial intelligence in baseball right now, and a lot of them went to Ivy League schools. <laughs> That may sound like a topic for a future show as well. <laughs> well, you got, you got, yeah. you got people in front offices that didn't play the game is what you're basically alluding to. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, and that's, and we, again, you know, we started off this broadcast, this, this podcast by talking about the, the major changes in major league baseball. You talk about, you know, all the analytics that are in the game. The, the analytics have, have, have now we've come to the point where we trust analytics more than we do our own eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's that should never take, ever supersede some statistic on a computer screen. 
But I do think analytics have served a, pu- a purpose, and I do think they can help you in your preparation and your scouting and your analysis and things like that. But I don't think it can take the place of, of personal opinions and eyes in the seats and, and eyes on the ground, especially like from the scouting area. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, you're, you're trying to tell me analytics can tell me whether this guy's got a great baseball mind or whether this guy, this is the guy you want up in, this, in, in a clutch situation. Analytics doesn't always tell the story. It just doesn't. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I had a, a discussion the other day with, with someone who really knows the game. Here's, a, here's an analytic, a, a, a modern-day analytic. 90% of runners at third base with one out on a sacrifice fly score successfully. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Now, if you had if you didn't send them only 30% of the time, now you have two outs. 30% of the time, the runner ends up scoring that inning. And his argument was you should send the the, the runner a third every single time. And I said, "You know what? That's crazy. That's abs- that it does not make any sense." And he kept arguing with me and arguing with me and arguing with me. Well, he's only he only scores thirty percent of the time with two outs. I said, "Well, give me the scenario." He said, "The scenario is irrelevant." I said, "No, it's not. The scenario means everything when the success rate is ninety percent. That's the human element of the game where analytics can't tell you the decision making of the game. The third base coach and the base runner usually communicate based on the situation. Is the ball deep? Is the runner slow? Is the outfielder got a good arm?" Is the scoreboard telling me I should go? Does the scoreboard tell me I shouldn't go? Is uh, is the guy on deck the hottest hitter in Major League Baseball? Does he hit? Is he hitting five hundred off the pitcher? I mean, all these things analytics cannot tell you. Who's the smartest baseball man you ever knew? Oh my gosh! Um, or you, you don't have to pick one. I mean, give me a. Well, I, I I I think generally speaking, Whitey Herzog and Jim Leland. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are two of the smartest guys, but overall, as far as how the game should be played and how the game uh, needs to be played, probably George Kissel knew more about baseball than any man I ever come in contact with. Yeah, I know that uh, you had a good good history with him, and when I did a story on him before he went into the Cardinals Hall of Fame several years ago, you offered some unique perspectives on what what he meant to you and what what he meant to your career uh, back starting when you were in the low minor leagues in the Cardinals system. Yeah, well, George Kissel. Um, man, that, that guy, uh, he had a way of, of getting knowledge into a player in a way I, 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 I've never seen before. He, uh, he understood, he, what he really did, I think more than anything else, he, he understood the human element and he didn't always get to everybody, but he, he had a way of, of finding out who you are and how you tick and then speaking your language. And that, that was his greatest asset, that he could speak a language that you could understand to make you a better player. And don't you think that's the greatest asset a manager can have is what he has to do to get the best out of each individual player that he has on his team? I th- sure. Absolutely. I mean, that's 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 the key. I mean, I, I've, I've always said about managers is um, the great managers are, are the ones that don't win games. They just don't lose games as often. One thing I will know about Whitey Herzog managing in spring training, we never had to worry about playing extra innings because he always had a pitcher that he knew he could bring in that would make sure that game was over. 
in the ninth. <laughs> well, Jim Leon always always brought just enough pitchers that he made sure we were we're not going in extra innings. He would say, "I ran out of I ran out of pitchers." As as good as spring training is, and I used to think, and I still do this, Bill. It has changed. That I used to think the month of March was the best month of the year. That I, I enjoyed covering spring training. I think the players enjoyed being at spring training. They were looser. They weren't as tight. You know, the wins and losses didn't matter as much. I think the way that everything that surrounds the game has changed and made it more corporate has made it harder. The access is so much more harder now than it used to be to get to players, to talk to them. But I still think it's a great month of, of the year, and we're just getting started with the spring training for this year. It, it is. It, it can be. You know, it can be the best. I think for everybody involved in it, maybe except for the players, I think people outside, uh, outside the field, I would say that's probably true. And you know, and the players are more accessible. Um, I think all major league teams are guilty of protecting players more than they ever have. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but the protection of the access of the players, like you said, um, that has become a more difficult issue. Um, and for the good of the game, I, I hope it goes back like it used to be. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I think anything, everything has changed now about the game. But we're not going back the way it was. You know, there's too much money involved. Tickets cost too much. Players make too much money. That you know, everything else that surrounds the game, television rights are, are so you know so paying so much that I I, I wish it, I agree with you. I think it was better game thirty years ago, but I don't think we're going back. Better game or different game? I think it was better myself. I mean, I think it was a more enjoyable game. I think you know. I thought you mean I'll, spring I'll, training games. No, I'm talking about league, just games in general. Major league games in general. Because I think here's the thing: I used to have relationships with players, and you were one of them. I could talk to you about anything going on in the world. It didn't have to be about baseball games. I mean, you knew sure. you knew my wife. You knew my kids. I knew your wife. I knew your kids. You know, and and we had a friendly relationship. Did that mean that I had to always be? You know, I couldn't write something negative if I needed to write something negative about you. No. I, and I I remember some some articles that were not uh, they were honest right I may not have liked them but they were honest and I think what has happened Rob is um, in our culture that a lot of the a lot of the writers or people on television they want to make their own name they don't want to tell the the, the true story but here, you know, my, they, my point is just though that, that I had conversations like that you know five times a week back you know 20 years ago 30 years ago and it didn't matter which player it was i could have a conversation like that with him i in the last mm-hmm. in the last five years i think i've had two conversations like that where i never picked up a notebook i never asked you know i mean i never was quoting anybody in a story we were just talking we were friends it was carlos beltran was sure. the last guy that i had that conversation with and i considered him an old school kind of player a throwback to, right. to guys like you that played in your era and I think the, I think that has hurt the relationships between writers and the media and players. And I think that has affected the way they cover the game. I think that's affected the way they feel about the game. And I think ultimately it affects the way players act and and are responsible to the media. Well, and players are not the only one who's guilty. There's there are a lot of managers who have taken that that same point of view. They, I I know there are managers who think the media is the enemy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do too. And I yeah, had some of them and, tell me that. It's a, well, and that's unfortunate because they, sh- they should be an asset. I mean, if you do it the right way, you can have the media eating out of your hands if you do it the right way. And with the understanding that sometimes you may not like what they have to say, but 
um, you know, turning the turning the page and moving on the next day, it goes a long way. And here's another perspective I think that managers and players should should remember. You know, obviously the, the days of the, of the newspaper are dwindling, and in the near future there may not even be any more. But my gosh, you know, if something negative or positive is written about you. Uh, you know, two days later, it's old news. It's old news. People right. forget, you know, they forget 20 minutes after what they read anyways. And, and I'll say this, though. I don't think – I'm not defending media people taking cheap shots at players or managers or front offices or anything like that. You need to have – you know, you can have opinions, but you've got to be fair and you've got to be reasonable. And when you have something positive to say about somebody, you have to say that too. I mean, you can't always write negative stuff and you can't always, you know – uh, try to act like you're a tough guy and you're not afraid of people and you can take them on because I got a column and I can write whatever I want. Sure, Though, that's a bad perspective too. Yeah, and well, that does, that act acting like that doesn't get you very far in a clubhouse. No, no, it doesn't. And I think most you know most players or managers, uh, there was a day when they they understood that columnists were actually different than guys who who were the beat writers. And here's the problem: there's so much media now, it's hard to distinguish who uh, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Sure. So, or who are the guys who are there all the time and, and everything like that too. It used to be that if somebody had something negative to say about a team, they wrote it when the team was out of town because they didn't think anybody on the team would see it. <laughs> that shows you how much we've changed as a society too. That's that's absolutely correct. All right, so well, we uh, got a lot of future things we can talk about. We over do. The, we uh, do we're have a lot of fun. How about how about uh, how, how, how about open, How about opening day though for spring training? I mean, I don't want to brag, but. You know, there was a there was a guy named Van Slyke who who single handedly beat the St. Louis Cardinals on opening day. How about that? He did two home runs, one of them a grand slam in the seventh inning, grand and uh, kind of kind of made his case for uh, winning a spot on the Marlins there on the first day of spring training. Yeah, my my son Scott. How about that? He uh, he looks like an old man in that team. Man, you talk about a young ball club and what Derek Jeter has done, and that and that new ownership. Um, gosh, they got a young team. I mean, I I. I I mean, I would say probably every guy that I looked on that bench, except maybe a couple of guys, including my son, can't even grow facial hair yet. Well, your son could grow facial hair when he was about twelve. I think. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. He has been uh, he has been uh, <laughs> misinterpreted, I think, many times in an airport as being part of the Taliban. <laughs> he's because he's he's got Arabic blood in him to begin with from my wife's side of the family and that long beard, so. There's been plenty of times when uh, he's been going through the airport that they take an extra search on him. Speaking of Scott, made me think, let me ask you this question. Is it harder for you watching a baseball game when your son is playing than when it was when you were actually playing yourself? Is it, is it more nerve wracking? Well, it's more emotional. I don't know if it's necessarily more nerve wracking, but it's more emotional. You know, it's, I feel better um, when he does well than when I did. And I feel worse when he doesn't. So, as far as being nervous about it, not really, but it's it's it definitely is emotion, it's very very emotional for for me. You know, matter of fact, today, uh, you know, when you hit that second home run, uh, my wife and I, you know, we we saw it, and I didn't say anything. I'm just standing, there, and all of a sudden, these tears start coming down my eyes, and she goes, "What's wrong with you?" I said, "I'm just crying for my son because I know how hard he worked this offseason. He and I were in a batting cage every just about every day for two months, and um." He has done everything he can to make himself uh, a major league player this offseason. He took he took great risk in, in changing his swing uh, to try to play at the big league level. So I give him a lot of credit. Now, 
one one day it's not going to decide whether he you know he he's an everyday major league player or if he makes a major league team. But it certainly was good to see uh, the results that he's had instantaneously. And man, way beyond anything that I could have uh, I've could have dreamed up working with him all, all winter long. And it illustrates one interesting thing about spring training too. We 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 we've talked kind of all over the place about a lot of different topics around these first couple of shows. But I think one of the things about spring training is you also have to understand and appreciate a player in spring training and what what position they are in. You know, are they a proven veteran that's just getting his work in to be ready for the season? There's no worries about his spring training performance as long as he doesn't get hurt. Or you got a guy that's a career minor leaguer that gets one shot to try to make it to the big leagues, or you get a guy who's been around a little bit, but there's questions about whether he can still play at the major league level or not. So so how how your position as a player coming into spring training, I think has a lot to do with with you know watching different guys in spring training and what they can accomplish because of what it means to them individually if they're going to make a team or not. Well, sure. I mean, and I think here's the thing. A manager and a coach staff understands a certain player really needs – to perform, to show that he can play, and can he play under the pressure of performing? I mean, you know, the fact is that most teams, and this does not include teams like the Marlins or maybe even some of the younger, some some of the teams that have made no effort of putting in a winning team, but they're rebuilding. Is you know that certain guys uh, are, are on your on your roster. Basically, you know, if you got a twenty five man roster leaving spring training, you know, basically. About 20 guys. You know your 20, 21 guys. There's four or five spots on the really good teams that are being fought for. And those are the guys that uh, that you really have to pay attention to. You don't really worry about whether Stanton is hitting 150, obviously, or you know, if Molina is not going to be performing at the level, or Buster Posley out in San Francisco. Those guys, they have, they have the track record. It's those guys in spring training that are fighting for a job. And the guys uh, who perform the best – most of the time are the ones that are going to make that roster, Rob, because the, the player and the coaching staff and the manager and the GM, they understand, understand that that really is pressure for that player to perform. So spring training does count for certain players. Oh, sure. It absolutely does. I mean, I think there's, you know, you see guys come in that, you know, basically you did were afterthoughts when the spring began and they played so well, they, they earned their spot on the club. They, had, they forced the team to, uh, to do something different than what they really probably expected to do. You know what's interesting about the about performances in spring training? There's there's really a big difference between a pitcher's performance and a, and a, and an everyday player's performance. Now, a guy, let's say we'll we'll pick out Adam Wayne right here in St. Louis. I think it's really important for him to have a good spring training, based on the fact that even though he won a, some ball games last year, his his ERA was over five, his velocity was down. If he doesn't show good velocity in spring training. And you know he doesn't pitch very well. There's a lot should be a lot of concern, and I'm not just I'm just picking him out as an example. Even though he's a veteran guy, the the performance of pitchers is much more important than the performance of, of an everyday player like Molina or a, a guy like Buster Posley. But again, I think you have to you have to measure that with the results too. I mean, it's because he's not you know he's pitching a couple innings maybe you know in a game there's nothing get time to, to work out as much so I think it's important and a guy like Wainwright who had a bad year last year is in the last year of his contract makes a lot of money there's questions about his future can he, does he have anything sure. left I mean there are there are issues with him but I also don't think you can rely entirely on the results of a few spring training games to make a decision like that no no I'm not saying that but it, I'm saying I'm the same positionally when you look at players that's an example 
I'm saying the emphasis on pitching is is right. a, as a much more. Uh, you have to make a better analysis than you do an everyday player because you know 30 at bats in spring training really is not what's going to tell you what's going to happen in the season. I'm saying a, a a poor performance in spring training for a lot of pitchers is is the is the warning signs of what kind of seasons he's he's going to have. Right. I've seen it. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with that. So. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the difference. That's what I'm saying. The difference between an everyday player and a, and a, and a pitcher, you can separate those when it comes to a perf- bad performance in spring training. Well, maybe when we uh, pick up the next edition of the podcast, we'll have a little more spring training results to talk about. We'll have a few more players to uh, to talk about. I know one of the things that you want to do with this show is to bring on some interviews with special guests, guys you played with, guys you played against, people that you've worked with over the years in baseball. So we're going to be able to bring those perspectives into uh, our conversations in the future as well. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm wide open, Rob. I know you have some good ideas and your experience in the game is going to be very beneficial for our listeners. And this podcast uh, will not fail to succeed based on uh, on just me. It's going to be part of you. And, and I think, you know, your perspective is, uh, is a perspective that I think the listeners are going to really enjoy because, again, you know, you're an off the field perspective guy. I'm an on the field perspective guy. And here's the wonderful thing. Um, over the years, you know, not only working uh, with you professionally on and off the field, but also in radio studio, I've learned a lot about the game from you, and you've given me a different perspective, and I hope the same is for you. And so our listeners will have a point of view, I think, that uh, that may not be getting anywhere else. Yeah, don't forget, com will be the website for this uh, podcast. We've got to get you on Twitter here at some point, but you can people can always follow me at Rob Rains, R-O-B-R-A-I-N-S. They can uh, shoot us a question there as well if they want us to cover a topic on a future show, or I think there'll be some uh, uh, an email address that we'll be able to, to provide on later future shows that people can, we want to get their comments, we want to get their opinions, so they've got something they want us to talk about or a uh, guess. Hey, what's your what, what's your website it's my website, your website is, is stlsportspage.com covering the cardinals and all the other sports in st louis as well as uh, you know other things going on in the st louis community travel food some of those entertainment kind of issues so that's uh, that's where people can find us we're we're, we're gonna have, right. we're gonna have fun doing this and we want uh, we want the public to be uh, be included and give us their opinions their feedbacks because one thing you and i don't know all everything there is to know about baseball we kind of might think we do and we might act like we okay. do, but I think that uh, there's other people's perspectives. No, I, we if we don't, we'll pretend. I know that. We're pretending. Here's a little te- here's a little future tease for you, Rob, and 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 we need to discuss this. The uh, the color analysis of a female in the Major League Baseball booth that needs to stop. We need to talk about that in the future. Sounds like a topic for a future show. It does. It does. All right. Hey, appreciate it. Again, this is uh, A View from Center Field. I'm Andy Van Slyke, and that was Rob Raines. Tune in again.